Well, if you would, please open your Bibles back to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6. If you're a visitor with us today, um, we have been going consecutively through the book of Acts. Those of you who have been with us know about this series we've been studying. And what's, what's exciting for me, as I told you a couple weeks ago, if you remember, we studied... Really, Acts 6, 4, in one sense, all the way to Acts 8, 4. Because I told you, we had to get to the end of Stephen's life to see the exclamation point that God was putting on it. Why Stephen came, had a short ministry, lived and died. But I didn't want to leave Stephen too quickly. I didn't want to leave his life too quickly. There's too many things that God wants us to learn. And today, I want to even have a little bit of an interactive time, uh, a couple different moments in the sermon today. But I guess I could begin by asking you this, in this context, why do you think it is that God calls us to study the lives of great men? Why does God want us to study the lives of great men? What do you guys think? What do you think? Go ahead and answer. What, what, what do you guys think? Why would God... Like, we're going to study the life of Stephen this week and probably in two weeks again. Why does God want us to study the lives of great men in the Bible, in church history? Yeah, Isaac. Uh, I believe that He wanted us to do it so we could actually see God's truth being modeled uh-huh. um, in different men's in different circumstances and different seasons um, with different resources that they have available to them mm. on a different persecution level. That was a good word by Isaac. He said, so that we can see men in different seasons of life with the resources God gives them in different seasons of even persecution, how they walked with their God. Yeah, Connor. Uh, okay. I would say yeah. Both of you are saying you know, a, a similar thing. Not only knowing it, but imitating it. Can anybody think of a specific passage in the Bible that explicitly tells us, here's why you should study great men? Explicitly teaching in the Bible. You know? Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, and then where after Hebrews 11? You're right there. You're there. That was really good. Actually, why don't you just turn from Acts 6 over to Hebrews 11 and 12 really quick. You may not realize this, but there's a lot of reasons we could come up with on why we study great men, but just by way of introduction, as we're thinking about the life of Stephen, who I'm going to share with you in a moment, his life, the Bible actually explicitly tells us, here's why you study great men. Here's why you watch men on the pages of Scripture and even in church history, how they walked with their God. Notice Hebrews 11, verse 1. The topic is faith. Now faith is this. Here's the essence of faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is trusting in God, believing in God, grabbing a hold of His promises when you have nothing else but what He says to believe in Him. No sense of it, no feelings about it, just what He says in His Word, and you take Him at His Word. Now faith then, in Hebrews 11, takes shape, if you notice, He goes through, starting in verse 4, and then all the way down, verse 5 and 6, Enoch and Abel. And you've probably read Hebrews 11. You see Noah, you see Abraham, you see Sarah, you see men and women of great faith. Now, go to the end of Hebrews 11. 
There's a comment made in the end of Hebrews 11, starting in verse 37. Some men and women of great faith, God decided that He would allow their lives to end early, their ministries be cut short. Notice verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. He's speaking of patriarchs and prophets of old, the prophets in particular who were mistreated for their faithfulness to Christ, for their life of faith. And then verse 38 has to be one of my favorite little sentences in the New Testament. These men and women to whom gave their lives for the gospel, look at what 38 says. Men of whom the world was not worthy. Heaven was the only place sufficient for them because of their faithfulness. I commend to you our Pastor Jerry and his sermon called, his series called Men of Whom the World Isn't Worthy. And he has two sermons on the life of Stephen and many other great men. I won't imagine I'm going to outdo his sermons on Stephen, but I commend them to you as well as every other great man he looked at. But notice, it says there, verse 38 again, men, we could say women, of who the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, and all these having gained approval, notice, through their faith. Their life of faith is what God was pleased with. And they did not receive what was promised, saying they did not see the fullness of the promises given in the Old Testament and how they're fulfilled in the New, but they still lived by what they were told. Verse 40, Because God has provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would be made perfect through Christ. Now, chapter 12, verse 1, ignore the chapter break and realize, look at the first word of chapter 12, verse 1. There's a little word there. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore, is what you should ask. Therefore, in light of the fact that God has marked out certain men and women and given them this great faith, and they've walked with God faithfully, therefore, in light of studying their lives, here's what should happen in your life as you study their life. Here is, here is specifically what God intends to happen when we study the lives of great men. Therefore, in light of great lives that have gone before, Notice, since we have a great cloud of witnesses. Who are the witnesses? Everybody of great faith in chapter 11. And you could say, every faithful person since then that's walked with their God to the end. These cloud of witnesses surrounding us. What should be the result, beloved? There's a result here that should come from studying the lives of great men. It's not just that we romantically think about how incredibly useful they were. That's all wonderful. But it should lead to something specific in your life. When you study great men, notice, Therefore, let us lay aside, repent of, push off, Put to the side. The word lay aside could be just shed something in your life or all the way to repentance. And there's two categories of things we're to lay off here. The non-sin category, that just which slows you down. Notice, let us lay aside every encumbrance. So, beloved, when we study the life of Stephen, an encumbrance is something that slows a runner down in his race. It was terminology used to describe Greek runners when they'd go for a long meet and they'd go to run. They needed speed. They wouldn't go and say, let me put on a backpack, let me put on some extra stuff, let me put on all the clothes that I can and try and go run. 
No, they would trim down to as minimal a clothing as possible that was appropriate to run in, and they would take off everything else that they could, and they would run. Why? They wanted nothing to hinder them from running well. So when you study the lives of great men and women, explicitly in the Bible, it's supposed to make you take an inventory on your life and say, what areas of my life are slowing me down in my run for Christ-likeness? What area of my life do I need to take an inventory? And when I look at the life of Stephen, and I look at my life, there is a gap. And it may not even be sinful, just the way he used his time. i got to use my time better. I need to evaluate. So this is the non-sin category we could say. How do we know that? Because he doesn't just say here, lay off encumbrances, things that weigh you down, excesses. But notice, also, lay aside sin. So here you've got encumbrances that's separate from sin. Those things that slow you down that may not be inherently sinful, and then those things that are sinful. Notice, the sin which so easily entangles you, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. So when you study the life of Stephen, the second thing that's explicitly supposed to happen is you're not only supposed to look at excess baggage that you need to shed, but you're supposed to look at your life and say, where is there categories of sin, besetting sins is the idea, that keeps me from living like Stephen in his faithful life? It's meant to call you to take an inventory. So when we study his life, I want those two categories in your mind. What are encumbrances that are slowing me down? And what are maybe areas of sin that are besetting, that are keeping me from running my race faithfully? So now, with that in mind, go back to Acts 6. There's your explicit reason the Bible gives you. You study great lives. I was trying to imagine how to reintroduce you to Stephen without reading (laughs) Acts 6 to Acts 8. And so what I did is I I just began to think this week, beloved. I began to think, and I took some liberty here, but I think all the data that I pulled together is sufficiently giving you what I'm about to say. I imagined what it would be like if we met Stephen in heaven. And you met Stephen in heaven, and what will we do in heaven for all of eternity? We will retell the glories of God and how He used our meager efforts for His glory, how He used our faith and got Himself glory. And all of eternity, He will be connecting dots for us, and we rejoice in all the ways He used us. So I imagined, what would it be like to sit down with Stephen? I anticipate that day. I want to sit down with a lot of guys. I want to sit down with Noah. (laughs) Be like, friend, what was it like? When you got off the ark. Alright guys, it's just us. You know, like, what was your speech to your family? (laughs) I want to talk to a lot of guys. I want to talk to Moses. I want to talk to Abraham. I want to talk to John Calvin. I want to talk to Luke. I got a list of guys I'm going to go track down. (laughs) And Stephen's going to be one of them. And I guarantee when we talk to him, it's going to be an incredibly joyful conversation. So I imagined this is what it would be like. And I've taken all the data from Acts 6 to 8, along with what we know of his history through the, from Jesus through the first six chapters of Acts, and I think it would sound something like this. Let's imagine if Stephen gave public testimony today. Hi, my name is Stephen. You may have heard of me. I had the privilege of being the first martyr in church history. I was part of the first church planted by God in Jerusalem. My conversion, my short ministry, and my martyrdom all took place just months after our Lord Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven. I was raised in a family 
by Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews, as you know, were the Greek-speaking Jews of the day. My family line connects back to the ten tribes of Israel who were spread out during the Syria's captivity of our people. We were spread out and dispersed. My direct family line, I came from a line of slaves. My father's grandfather and those before him were slaves after Pompey's conquest in Judea in 63 B.C. After that, after they were freed from their slavery, they started a synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen. And we know that from Acts 6, that he was part of the synagogue of the freedmen that was made up of ex-slaves who were Jewish Greek speakers. My forefathers were emancipated and made free. They started the synagogue of the freedmen. I was raised in a home and indoctrinated with teaching of the Old Testament as I would go to the synagogue and go to worship. I was taught many things about Yahweh, and I thought I worshipped Him. And then this man Jesus came on the scene. And along with all my friends in the synagogue of the freemen, we rejected Him. Not because what was said in the Scriptures wasn't true, but our hearts were hard, and I was a rebel at the core. To my shame, I thought He was a fake. The Scriptures spoke of Him, but my heart was hard and unbelieving. And then our precious Lord was executed by the hands of godless men, and I gave hearty approval. Some months later, Jesus' followers, who I now call my precious friends, the disciples, the apostles, they started preaching. They started preaching all through Jerusalem. We don't know exactly when Stephen got saved, but sometime under those early apostles' preaching or someone saved under the apostles' preaching, he would have come to Christ as they were ministering in the synagogues. So he would have said something like, God was merciful to me, and under the apostles' preaching, he softened my cold, self-righteous heart. I was pierced to the heart, and the Word of God penetrated my inner life, and I was born again. What a joy it was to know sins forgiven, my pardon complete. Jesus was my substitute. It was a joyous day. I then went and got baptized in the pools around Jerusalem before my new church. The church I joined and immediately immersed myself in body life. And even some of my old Jewish friends saw me give public testimony to Christ. I was immersed in the church. I spent my days studying the Old Testament, sitting under the Apostles' doctrine, immersing myself in discipleship relationships. And any time a need arose in the church, I wanted to be someone that God could use to meet it. No matter how insignificant the need was, I just knew that my life now needed to be used for Christ. To my shock, a need arose in the church. The Hellenistic Jewish women, the new widows that were saved, they weren't being fed sufficiently. So the church decided, we need to call some faithful men to administrate this massive task of feeding these widows. And to my shock, the church chose me and six other men. I was burdened by the need, and it was an amazement to me that they would actually ask me to take on such a task. I leapt at the opportunity, because I know that it was a privilege to serve practical needs if it freed up the apostles for teaching and the Word. It's reminding you of our sermon. This was Stephen. A short time after that, God saw fit and the church affirmed me to start leading home Bible studies and to start ministering the Word. And in fact, I got sent out to go minister to the other Jewish-speaking, the Greek-speaking Jews. Some of them were my old friends at the synagogue of the freedmen. 
A couple different times they took me on face to face and tried to silence me for speaking about Christ and speaking how the Old Testament spoke of Him. But by the grace of God and my immersion in the Scriptures and studying the Word, what overflowed from my life was clarity from the Old Testament. And I showed them that they did not understand what they were missing in Christ. Once they couldn't silence me, they got angry. So they attacked me. My old friends, old people in my synagogue. And they drug me before the Sanhedrin. And they put me on trial. And when they put me on trial, they knew they had no legitimate claim, so they raised up a false witness against me. That false witness told a lie. He told this lie. This man, they said of me, is distorting the Word of God. And then, Annas, the high priest, gave me an opportunity to defend myself. And because I had been immersing my life in the Word of God, what flowed out of my heart was I wanted to demonstrate to them, you can say evil things about me, but don't accuse me of distorting the Scriptures. I will show you what I think of the Word of God. And I preached my guts out the best I could. And I told them how much I loved the prophets and the patriarchs and all that was written before Christ and how much I love Christ. And then I thought, you know what? I love these men. I love them too much to leave them in their condition. So I confronted them. And I told them they were self-righteous and rebellious. And they were responsible for killing Christ. They got angry and they charged me. Some of them putting their hands over their ears so angry that I would speak so clearly about Christ. And they drug me out of the city. And then I imagine he'd say, and you know what happened next. God decided that he was going to use my life and my death as the means to raise up the great Apostle Paul. Paul was there. He held the coats of the men that were stoning me. They needed to take off their coats so they had total freedom to kill me. And Paul stood there and gave hearty approval and enjoyed watching me die. But what a mercy that God used my death and my martyrdom as part of the means to save the Apostle Paul who he used to spread the gospel all over Europe. So what happened to me next? I started getting hit by stones and hit by rocks. I was being pummeled all over my body and God was merciful to me. I looked up to heaven and God allowed me to see His glory and His presence and as the stones were hitting me, He allowed me to breathe my last. But just before that, he put on my heart to pray for them. And so I spent a moment praying for the men stoning me, asking God to be merciful to them because all I wanted was my countrymen to know Christ. And even if my death was used to help them see their sins, so be it for the glory of God. And then I breathed my last and my faith became sight. And God used my death my ministry, my martyrdom to spread the gospel all over Judea and Samaria and embolden Christians to go faithfully preach. What a privilege my life was. That's what I think his testimony would sound like. <laughs> That's a powerful life, beloved. That is a powerful life. That is a man of great faith. And so here's what I want to do for the rest of our time today and next time. I want to look at Stephen's life in four moments. I want to look at four moments of his life that capture this great man and his faith. And I want you to see the degree of his faith in these four moments. And I want you to consider this morning, we'll look at two this morning and two in a couple weeks. I want you to consider where is excess baggage in my life hindering me from this type of life like Stephen? And where is sin hindering me from this type of life like Stephen?
So I'll give you the four moments up front. This will be our outline the next couple weeks. And then I actually am going to ask you this question. How does a man get to a point where he can respond in the moment like Stephen? Because faith is what drives it. What he believed is what allowed him to live how he lived. Because you know what's amazing about Stephen's life? Nothing is manufactured. Nothing is artificial. Nothing is contrived. In the moment, what arises from him is great faith. Well, that doesn't come from nothing. And remember, he wasn't an apostle. He's a fairly new believer. And he was a regular person in the church. So by all means, he's a greater rebuke to us. Because he lived this way probably the first year of his Christian life. So here's the four moments that arise in this man's life. The flesh doesn't come out of him, but a life totally submitted to the Spirit. And the first moment we're going to look at is this, when the whole church recognized his usefulness for the gospel. The second moment we're going to look at, and I'll restate these, when he spontaneously spoke the word with courage and precision. That is to say, when he wasn't preparing for it and he he was on, what came out of him was penetrating truth. Thirdly and fourthly, These are very convicting. When his face shined like an angel while being falsely accused. He showed off the beauty of the gospel while he was being falsely accused by people that hated him. How does a man respond like that? And then fourthly, when he compassionately prayed for those stoning him. How does a person get to a point where they can pray in the moment for the people killing them that God would save them? This is a great man. Four moments. So... Let's look at the first moment in Stephen's life that we can learn from. Notice chapter 6, verse 1, down to verse 5. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose among the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked. That's what we talked about, where Stephen went and took care of the ministry, as we'll see in a moment, of feeding the Greek-speaking Jewish women who were not being cared for like they could have been. Why did he do it? Well, notice verse 2, the twelve summoned the congregation and the disciples and said it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. The ministry of the word was a priority. Therefore, verse 3, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, of wisdom, whom may be put in charge of the task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This statement found approval with the whole congregation and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Let's stop there. Did you notice what happened? The apostles told the church we have needs to meet. The church said, okay, we have some people that can meet those needs. And the first one they chose was Stephen. So I have a question for you. What does it take for a person to be living in such a way that the entire church recognizes that they are a person that should take on a very important task to care for these precious widows. How must a person must live so that that person's name populates in people's mind when they think there's a great need to meet? That moment for Stephen, this first moment, when the whole church recognizes usefulness for the gospel. I ask you that question. You can answer it. What does it take for a person? How would a person live in such a way that when there was a need arose that had to be met to protect the ministry of the word, that the entire church said, yep, Pick him, pick him, pick him, and pick him. How must a person must how must they live to be viewed that way? What do you guys think? He needs to be immersed in body like Did you read my notes? <laughs> Did you hear what Jordan said? First, for a person to be recognized at that level, you can't be on the fringe of the church, can you? 
can't be a casual participant in body life. Jordan said you have to be immersed in the church. And what would that immersion look like for them to say there's a great need in this massive task of taking care of this behind-the-scenes ministry? How would a person have to live where people thought they could trust him with behind-the-scenes ministry like that? Yeah, Isaac. Um, I think the separation would come between private and public life. Like, it would have to be exposed and light has to be shined on this private life for them to be able to speak, saying that mm. even amongst persecution or even amongst like, pressure, he's still the same person. So he has to show some form of consistency in each walk of his life. For them to be able to so are you saying that when it says here he's a man of good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom... That means his private life and his public life are the same. Correct. It's a, it's a life of integrity. That's the only way you can speak on a person, in my opinion. Mm. Do you think they would give someone this significant of a task if he wasn't faithful in the insignificant small things? You're trusting him with a ministry that protects the apostles being able to bring doctrine to the new church, and the church needed doctrine. So he would have had to demonstrate what? Faithfulness in what? Small things. So we got immersion in the church, a life of integrity, faithful in the small things. What else makes the whole church have someone populate in their mind, choose him, he's the right man for the job? Yeah. Amanda. Hmm. Yeah, full of the Spirit, so a life submitted to the Spirit and the Scriptures. Full of wisdom, that's a life of conviction, right? He's known by what he believes and he lives by what he believes. And so you wouldn't have to wonder what his convictions were. He's the same, right? It's just such a good word. A man or a woman that's like a Stephen is known by what they believe. You don't have to wonder if they're not with you if they're living the same way. They're always the same. Their convictions don't move if they're in a tougher context or an easier context. They always live the same way. Mm, that's convicting. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, there's no hidden agendas. So full of the Spirit, right, would be a life submitted to the Spirit. No hidden agenda. He just wanted to serve. In fact, he was ready to serve behind the scenes to be insignificant for the glory of God. I mean, in our day, that's not common, is it? Insignificance for the glory of God? Mary. Could you imagine the son of one of the widows? My mom hasn't eaten in two days. Why are you not caring for her? The ability to serve, to have thick skin, to not be easily offended, to be able to resolve conflict, to be known as someone that's a peacemaker. Mm. Full of the wisdom, full of spirit. A life of good reputation. Yep. What else? Yeah, Sarah. known by his word. You could trust him. You, remember, the apostles were going to hand him this ministry and then go get back to prayer and ministry of the word. So he's someone you hand ministry to and you don't have to worry what's going to happen next. Yep. Yeah, David. Um, everyone got touched on it, but I think he was 
one by his word that he, he says something new and do it. Not he wasn't all talk, he was all walk. So I think that goes a long ways. Mm. Stevens got a pretty convicting life. Excess baggage, sin that hinders us from that. Yeah. Noah. I say he most likely also had a very self controlled and disciplined life, not prone to anger or jealousy or envy or contention. Life full of the Spirit. His life was constrained and controlled by the Spirit. Beloved, we often think of what we just described there oh, that's a 20 year veteran Christian. He's maybe six months to a year in the Lord. He got saved maybe three months earlier, maybe four months, probably learned some of his Old Testament growing up, but he literally committed his life to submitting to the Word of God at that level. I mean, you want to talk about a disciplined life, Noah. You betcha. This guy was every moment of every day thinking how his life could be in submission to Scripture. Galatians 5.24 In the Spirit. He was in the Spirit. There's an implication I want to draw from this. There's two of them. The first is that what we're saying and everybody's saying is, is captured in right the idea of humility. He was humble. He was willing to be insignificant for the glory of God. And secondly, beloved, Jordan said it first, how could you be this type of Christian and follower of Christ if you're on the fringe of ministry? If you're not immersed in body life? And this is maybe a concern that arises from this. I want you to think about the book of Acts for a second and think about Stephen. How could someone become a Stephen if they're not immersed in body life? You realize that in the book of Acts, there wasn't this American idea where you get saved, then you spend a number of years kind of wandering around figuring out your life, treating church like it's a la carte, going here, going there, traveling to this place. It's like a gym membership. I may be there, I may be a part of it, maybe not. And then after a while, once I figure out my life, maybe I go to college for four years, and while I'm at college, I kind of focus on my degree and my stuff, and I kind of, when I get to church, I can. And, and then after your degree, oh, i got to figure out my career, and I go figure out my career, and work that out, and oh, now I'm married and kids, oop, I better figure out how to get myself in the life of the church because I want to raise my family in the church. That's very American. Okay, book of Acts. You're saved, you're baptized, and you're immersed into church life and known in body life immediately. No shopping, no running around. You jump into body life and you're known as an active, involved member in the church. I was encouraged by a young man recently telling me that he's going to join and become a member of the church. And, and I said, that's so great. I'm so encouraged because that demonstrates to me that you're not thinking culturally anymore. And when I mean culture, I mean Christian culture in America where you've got this, this, this loose connection with the local church. You're actually thinking about New Testament Christianity. We're beloved. Listen, there's no such thing as a churchless Christian in the Bible. None. You won't find it. You find immersion in local church life. Stephen, months in the Lord, is immersing his life in the church. And so I told this young man, I'm so encouraged, you're finally thinking biblically, not culturally. I want you to think about something. Every believer in Acts and Stephen's life is a rebuke to the typical American ideal. I want you to imagine if you were transplanted with the typical American ideal, which I had for the first year I was a believer, and many people do, and you were transplanted back in to the book of Acts and you're in Jerusalem and you wander into the, the market and you meet another Christian. 
and you say, I'm a Christian. And you're here and you're one of those people that's loosely attached to the local church or maybe you're bouncing around or whatever. You're a typical American early Christian that doesn't know their Bible. And you meet this believer and they say, they're from the church in Jerusalem, we'll say, and you say, I'm a Christian. They go, oh, me too, that's great. The first question they'd ask is, where do you fellowship at? Who are the shepherds that are in your life? Where are you using your gifts that the Spirit has given you in the church? How are you ministering in body life? Tell me about your local congregation. In America today, American answer, well, I'm bouncing around. I don't really have one. I attend one, but I'm not sure if I'm staying. It's tough for me with work and school to get involved. Well, I go to the Bible Church of Antioch, but I really don't know anyone. (laughs) You know what they would say? They'd probably look at you with this shock. And they'd say, but who are the shepherds that Paul and Peter said will give an account for your soul? Who are they? And they'd say, wait, the author Hebrews exhorts you to find shepherds and come under them and model their life. Who have you chosen as your shepherds? What are you doing? This isn't safe for you. Sheepless shepherds are not safe. How are you using your gifts that the Spirit, that Paul teaches us, that the Spirit will give you as a member of the church? How about false teachers and worldliness? The apostles warn us about that. How are you guarding against that? How are you obeying the one another's? Beloved, it's not even a category in the New Testament to not be immersed in church life. You know what grieves me today? Today in American Christianity that don't read their Bibles, if all you had this, you wouldn't even have a category for a churchless Christian that's casually committed to a local church. But today, we have real sheep wandering without flocks and with no shepherds. Listen, you cannot be an obedient Christian if you live that way, and you'll never be a Stephen. It's sad to me when I see believers casually attach themselves to what 1 Timothy 3.15 says is the pillar and support of the truth, the church. And then they atrophy and live sometimes decades a casual Christian life with no progress because they're not immersed in church life. And, and I'll just say something to you college students. This burdens me. This is not come to GIBC. I'll take off my GIBC pastor hat, okay? I'll put it over there. I'm going to hang it right here, okay? You can't imagine that your degree is more important than obedience, College students go to college and exist in their college life and maybe have some, some uh, you know, surrogate church at their university or with their friends or a little Bible study they attend. Beloved, and then they're just too busy for church. That's not an obedient Christian. That's not an obedient Christian. God calls you to immerse yourself in the life of the church. And this is where Stephen's faith took shape. You can't take a four-year break on obedience to Christ to get a degree. And those of you in this group that are immersed in the church, it thrills my heart. I was thinking about Michelle and the ministry yesterday. Thinking about ministry to our widows. That a group of our young ladies, millennials who usually shut off the older generation and say, we've got it better figured out than you, went and got together with a bunch of our widows and hosted a luncheon to serve them and minister to them and be ministered to Michelle and a bunch of ladies. That right there is how young people ought to act in the church. Encourage all of you ladies to jump into that ministry. Let me tell you something else. Do you want to know something? That if you lived in the New Testament and you moved from your local church to another, that the first order of business would be your pastor handing you a letter of affirmation that you would take to your next shepherd because they didn't imagine you should ever have a gap from one shepherd to another? Did you know that? 
The first order of business in a move was, find a church, here's your letter of recommendation, so when you go there, they know who you are, and you don't go a day without a shepherd. Man, have we drifted in America. What in the world? Let me show you this. Go to Romans chapter 16 with Phoebe. Notice, she was sent with a letter. A letter of affirmation. Philemon that Mark's been teaching through. Letters of affirmation. Notice Romans 16. 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant... I'll let you get there. Romans 16.1. I commend to you, church in Rome, our, our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Centuria, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever she may need of you. For she herself has always been a helper of many, myself as well. When Phoebe transferred ministries, she got a letter of affirmation. Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. Tychius is affirmed to the church in Ephesus. Timothy and Epaphroditus in Philippi, Philippians 2, 19 and 30. And Onesimus in Philemon, in Philemon's 10, to 21. I mean, we, we have just lost this. We do this at our church. Maybe not exactly the same way, but if one of you, you know this. If you're going somewhere else, I say, okay, you're moving? Where are you going to go to church? Who are you going to be your shepherds? Okay, let me write them an email. Let me know them about you. Or I want you to go find them on the first day and tell them where you come from so they know you're a part of the church. If you lived in the New Testament, you would travel with, with someone giving you a letter to go to your new place. What do we are doing in America treating the church like it's a buffet of all a cart, taking what we want from it and then bouncing around? Doesn't exist. It's not a gym membership. It's a local church purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Stephen was immersed in it. And believers like him were immersed in it. This is God's design. I spent the first year of my Christian life bouncing around with no discernment from church to church, Bible studying. Everywhere I went was church. No, it's not. <laughs> church is designed by God. It has elders. It has leaders. It has shepherds. It has holy people in, with godly character in positions of leadership. The word is upheld. Sanctification is preached. People are cared for. False church teaching is confronted. And on and on. It has membership. It has baptism. That's a church. So, beloved... <laughs> Go back to our outline. Stephen, in the moment of his life being saved just a year, was known and recognized for his usefulness to the gospel. The church knew who he was. And beloved, I know you want to be Stephen's in here. You cannot be a Stephen if you're detached from the means God used to sanctify his life. Let's just look at the second moment really quick. One more. One more moment. That's the church. Now, here's the second moment. When he spontaneously spoke the word of God with courage and precision. Go back to Acts 6. Just make a quick comment about this and I may revisit it next time we get together. But let's just look at it really quickly. Acts chapter 6. Go back. Second moment, he spontaneously spoke the word of God with courage and precision. There's two moments here. Notice chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, when he's confronted by the men in the synagogue and he stands with the truth. Notice, and Stephen, verse 8 of chapter 6, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men who were with the synagogue of the freedmen, where he used to be, including the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and some from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. 
So he's not saying he's prepared. He didn't wake up today and go, let me prepare a response when I get confronted today. He was jumped and confronted. What bubbled out of this man when he was exposed in a moment? What would come out of him? His opinion? Would he attack? No. Look at what he did. Verse 10, they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit by which he was speaking. The Bible came out of him. The truth came out of him. The Old Testament came out of him. And then you remember what happens next when he gets dragged before the synagogue. He preaches a sermon that covers 1,300 years of church history and covers from Abraham to Isaiah. He didn't know he was going to get put before the Sanhedrin. And he preached an entire message of the Old Testament with no notes. So what's that mean about him? Beloved, let me ask you the question. What does it take to be a man who spontaneously speaks the word with that precision and secondly, with courage? He could have feared man in those moments, couldn't he have? He could have deviated. He could have softened what he was going to say, but he didn't. So let me ask you, what does it take for a man to be called upon in a moment, unprepared, and what comes out of him is pure preaching with courage from the word of God? How must a man live to have that erupt in his life? What do you guys think? He must be immersed in the Scripture. He's only been saved but under a year. And he's handling the Word of God at that level. What about that kind of courage? How does one have that courage on hand? What do you think? We're studying on Thursday nights. <laughs> Robert. He must fear God more than he fears man. He must be so committed to the approval of God that in that moment the approval of man gets eclipsed. I told a young man recently, he came up to me and said, hey, I'm getting thrown into trials and seasons and difficulty that I've never been prepared for. I'm not ready for it. I haven't ever had this many, this many items at once come upon me where I have to be able to speak truth. And I said, well, you know what you need to do? <laughs> you need to be like, I was implying, be like Stephen. Stephen must have cut out everything in his life that was squandering time. <laughs> Sure, I'm sure he had some leisure and I'm sure he rested and maybe there were some activities that he spent with the friends there that he had in the church. But for a man to have that much conviction, that much courage and know his Bible that well, beloved, he was not out YouTubing. He didn't scroll his social media feed 16 times to see the same photos. <laughs> wasn't Instagramming what's going on in Antioch. <laughs> My point is not that social media is a problem. My point is that every person must realize if we're going to lay off excesses like Stephen, he must have looked at his life and every time there was a free moment, he, had a, he was learning the Apostles' Doctrine in discipleship and for us, a book in our hand, a Bible in our hand, a sermon in our ears. I told that young man, I said, you know what you need to do? You need to spend every free moment you have immersing yourself in Scripture so when you're called upon to speak in the moments you need to, what comes out of you is the Word of God, not yourself. Here's a great way to say it. Charles Spurgeon said this about John Bunyan. He said he bled Bibline. You want to be like Stephen? You need to bleed Bible. Charles Spurgeon once remarked about John Bunyan, why this man is a living Bible? Prick him anywhere. His blood is Bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his very soul is full of the Word of God. Beloved, 
To be a Stephen means that you're filling your mind with Scripture on a regular, relentless basis. I don't know why I'm this way, but since God saved me 10 years ago, if you catch me somewhere where it's not maybe a little free time or a leisure time, i got a sermon in my ear, a book in my hand, a Bible in my hand, I'm desperate because all the time I'm called on to speak truth. Even before I was a pastor, I was a baseball player. I didn't want to find myself in evangelism with a family member in crisis where I couldn't give people truth. I thought, how selfish could I be to get in a moment where God calls on me to be a Stephen and I have nothing to give them from the Word of God? Let Stephen be a rebuke for squandering of time. Building convictions, as was said earlier, filled his life. No wonder he was a man of wisdom. Know what you got to do, beloved? Find good books. Find good sermons. Find good podcasts. Find good friends that love the Word of God. And every chance you get. Do you know your Bible like Stephen in the first year of your Christianity? Can you preach 1,500 years of the Old Testament without notes? Okay. Well, he's a layman in the church. So we got a standard. This is how we must live. Stephen did not come to this by accident. He was a fairly new Christian. But this moment proves how he lived. Don't you want to be that for people when they come into your life? They meet you and they say, every time I talk to that person, I get scripture. I get principles. I get the word. I see their holiness. Don't you want to get to heaven and see a whole bunch of people, not for yourself, but for the glory of God, who God used you in small little moments like a Stephen to impact their eternity. What else would you live for? What are we doing wasting so much time? This Satan loves the busyness of our culture. Wrap them up in the busyness. Make them not care about anything but a week from now. Get them caught up on the next moment and keep them away from the Bible. It ought not to be. You ought to live and bleed Bibline. That's our second one. The whole church recognized his usefulness for the gospel. And when the moment was called upon, he spontaneously, not in preparation, it flowed out of him, spoke the word with courage and precision, which means you must also be mortifying fear of man. Two weeks, we are going to see. You thought that was convicting. How about when his face shines with the beauty of an angel when he's being falsely accused? Man. And when he prays for those killing him. I want to be like Stephen when I grow up. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord Jesus, forgive us for, man, how neglectful we can be. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for us, for paying the penalty for our sin. Thank you for Hebrews 12, where you tell us to study men like Stephen, to call us to shed excesses, and to put aside sin that keeps us from usefulness. Lord, I, I pray that any person in here that has treated your church casually would repent of that and call it what it is. It's rebellion against your word, even if they didn't know it. I spent much of my life, Lord, you know, not knowing what you say about your church. Forgive me and us for that, but now we're informed. <laughs> and we know what your word says, and we want to honor it, and we want to be like Stephen. And Lord, we're just rebuked by how what spontaneously flowed from him was Scripture and no fear of man. And Lord, that is a humbling thing to think about. And then to think that we're going to watch his face reflect divine beauty when he's being hostily treated. Lord, I pray for any here today that may not know you, that have never thought about Christ this way and hear Stephen's life and have no fruit in their life, that you would save them. 
Because the only way you can live like Stephen is by the power of the Spirit. And when you save us with resurrection power, you give us all the Spirit we need. Our issue is we don't tap into it enough. The Spirit comes through submission to the Word, and I pray we do that. And when we go hear from Pastor Jerry this morning, let us be extra attentive, taking in one more sermon for preparation for when you want to use us. We love you, Lord, in your name. Amen. You guys are dismissed.